Well, here we are. It is time, Simba. If you understand that reference, you might be about the age where we should be working together. It's possible. But it is now one of three times a year that I'm accepting clients for my freedom framework, overcoming food sensitivities and increasing energy without unnecessary restriction. My goal for my one-on-one clients is to take them through frameworks and explore tools for achieving 50, 80, 90% of their goals in just a few months and show them how to continue to heal on their own so they don't need me anymore. Honestly, I think we're doing great one-on-one work here, helping women that would otherwise be falling through the cracks, thinking that they're just aging, that they're just moms, that they just, and it may be true that they just have stress when really those stress hormones and their other core systems just really need some serious support and some serious love to serve them for years to come without symptoms. So if you'd like to clear inflammation, eczema, food sensitivities, or improve energy and brain clarity, I'd love to chat with you. You can book a call with me at kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, kristabigler.com forward slash FSS, and that link will be in the show notes. It's as novel as people might say it is that we come back to, you know, the basic principles of transmission and hygiene and science and history, which is if you're sick, you stay home. If you're symptomatic, that's when you spread disease and you stay home. Welcome to the Less Stressed Life Podcast, where our only priority is providing those aha moments to uplevel your life, health, and happiness. Your host, integrative dietitian nutritionist Krista Bigler, helps health conscious women reduce the stress and confusion around food, fatigue, digestive, and skin issues at lessstressnutrition.com. Now, on to the show. Okay. So today on The Last Dress Life, we have a return guest, Jenna Griffith. So you might remember her from not that long ago when she gave us a wow talk on all things blue light and blue light and eyesight and melatonin, etc. But today I've asked her back because her investigative mind has been just kind of reeling in the research around the current epidemic. And for a while, I was getting pitches about people coming onto the show to talk about coping with COVID, etc. And I was like, mm, I'm not really that interested in your topic. However, we're doing it. We're going to do the COVID episode because honestly, I'm just sort of like tired of what I see on the news because I don't know what's true and not true. So I've asked Jenna to come on today and for us to just go over some research articles about topics that are pretty important to us. So we're going to talk about kids going back to school. We're going to talk about asymptomatic transmission, masks, immunity. And then in a subsequent episode, hopefully we can talk Jenna into having a conversation about testing and treatment. But today we're going to jump in and talk about research. So let me tell you a little bit about Jenna if you did not listen to her other episode. She's worked in the field of nutrition for almost 15 years, and she's a second career dietitian. She was uh, previously did a million things in journalism and media, and then went back to school for dietetics. And she is now the director for Culpepper Wellness Foundation and Powell Wellness Center, a top-ranking medical wellness center in Virginia. So she's got certifications for the Institute of for Psychology of Eating, Institute for Integrative Nutrition, and uses food and nature as a doorway to improve mind, body, and spirit. Definitely a writer, definitely an investigator. Welcome back, Jenna. Thank you. Wow, that sounded good. Who was that person? <laughs> um, yeah, I totally understand your hesitation with COVID. And by the way, COVID fatigue is a real thing for people. So, um, yeah. 
Well, I'm trying to plan a conference right now. And we were just chatting the other day and uh, virtual fatigue can be a real thing too. We were talking about, do we move this conference online? And I'm like, ah, I guess I'm just going to go on nature trips (laughs) more than conferences this fall because I need time away from the old computer. But thank you again. I mean, hopefully you're listening to this on a nature walk or on a drive you need to go on, but let's jump into this. So we wanted to touch on a variety of topics here, but let's start with a symptomatic transmission, because that has been something that's kind of changed. And so what is the recent research saying about asymptomatic transmission? So there are a few things, right, that have guided that, those recommendations right now. Well, actually, I'm going to tell you about the main study, but I really want to go back and tell you how we got off on the whole history of asymptomatic spread. So the main study that is talked about often is a Chinese study that came out May 13th called the study on infectivity of asymptomatic cars, SARS-CoV-2 carriers. And so it was, you know, to determine whether asymptomatic carriers of COVID-19 are dangerous, right? So they had one asymptomatic carrier and she came in contact with 455 people. 35 of those people were patients in a hospital, 196 family members, and 224 hospital staff were all exposed to her. And, you know, pretty conclusively, not one single person became infected. So, you know, their conclusion said, thus, the infectivity is weak. This researchers, this is the direct quote, this finding indicates that it is needless to worry unduly for asymptomatic or mild patients during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. And just a few details, like, you know, the contact time for patients was about four days. And I mean, you can imagine family, right, was that was about five days. I'm sure that they spent lots of time together unmasked. So this is quoted often, this study regarding asymptomatic carriers. Just one more thing. I think it's kind of funny, and you could say this is an opinion, but many doctors also say this, asymptomatic carriers... I mean, are often healthy people. You know what I'm saying? They're not infectious. And that sort of goes against the way we believe uh, disease is transmitted. So, you know, asymptomatic carriers, this is sort of like really the linchpin, right? This is the whole basis for mask wearing. This is the basis for, you know, lots of things assumed about this virus. So with anything, it's like, how do you qualify what asymptomatic looks like, right? Because there's people who walk around that are like, um, I'm fine, but they might have stuff going on, right? And so we don't exactly know about, I mean, as I'm looking through the materials, methods, and results of this May 13th, 2020 study in respiratory med that you just talked about, a study on infectivity of asymptomatic SARS-CoV-2 carriers, you know, We assume no symptoms here. But, and I don't know if you know this, but I was kind of trying to find where we originally came up with the idea that asymptomatic spread was a huge problem. And I think there was a, and I don't have the citation for this, so I don't know if it's even valid to say here, but it came from a woman who said she was asymptomatic, but really did have some symptoms. Did you find, did, have you seen that same information? Okay. Yeah. Um, I didn't pull that, that citation, but. Well, so the main report used by the government, right, attesting to asymptomatic spread was a letter in uh, the New England Journal of Medicine, right, on March 5th. So it was more of a letter because so much of this is preliminary, right? Even the studies that have come out, many of them aren't peer-reviewed just yet. So anyway, this letter stated that a woman visited Germany from China. 
and she infected three colleagues. And this is what Fauci based a lot of his knowledge on. At least this is this is what I'm led to believe based on doing some of the reading. Based his knowledge on regarding asymptomatic spread. And this is what led him to believe that this was a big issue. But apparently she never spoke to the study researchers themselves. So when German health officials started speaking to her and investigated, she said to them that she had definitely had symptoms when the transmission occurred. And the scientist, I think I will send over that article, you know, reported on this. So the thing is, she didn't actually get to speak to researchers, right? So then apparently the German health officials wrote a letter to the New England Journal of Medicine, and we've yet to see any retraction or anything else about that. But she said she actually did feel warm the first night of her arrival and took an over-the-counter Chinese drug containing acetaminophen. So, you know, that was a detail. Obviously, that was important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe there's some validation to the whole temperature checking, right? What I think about when I think of like, what does this look like in real life when people are like, I think I have allergies. (laughs) I'm like, I think you're sick. (laughs) But anyway, so to be objective, point counterpoint, I found a June 2020 article in the Journal of Infectious, it gets abbreviated now as I've copied and pasted, it's a Journal of Infectious Disease, I believe, called Rapid Asymptomatic Transmission of COVID During Incubation Period, Demonstrating Strong Infectivity in Clusters of Youngsters, 16 to 23, Outside of Wuhan, Characteristics of Young Patients. So we're going to talk about school-age patients next. But mm-hmm. this just talks about a cluster of 22 people that spent a lot of time with a 22-year-old male and what happened. So they basically took clusters of eight youngsters, meeting age 22. This is like a little bit contradicting because it says a cluster of 22 close contacts of a 22-year-old male. Okay, so we got 22 contacts. Seven are cousins and classmates, blah, blah, blah. So some of them were became infected with COVID-19 after a few-hour contact with the main guy. None of them had visited Wuhan, blah, 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 had any other. So like they were only exposed to this one guy. Half or more of them had fever, cough, sputum production, nasal congestion, fatigue. All patients had mild conditions. Six developed pneumonia, all mild, one bilateral, blah, blah, blah. So by this, they're saying this is like when you're in close proximity, it's a quick incubation period. So this is kind of interesting because this is a little different. It says the median incubation period was two days, ranging from one to four, which is a little different than what we've heard otherwise. And I'm just sharing. This is just what this one study said, but it's pretty small, right? So the study you cited, just to review, we're talking about 35 patients, 196 family members, 225 hospital staff. So 455 people, truly asymptomatic, zero rate of transmission. Okay. So anything else you want to talk about with asymptomatic transmission before we go to talking about kids or like younger people? So the only thing I'd say, I just remember a quote from Dr. David Katz, who's been interviewed often throughout the pandemic. He wrote in a New York Times article, and I know we're trying to stay away from any news media, right, because of the opinion generated. But this is a direct quote from him that I've seen in a few places, and I thought it was interesting. So I'll just read it. He wrote, a robust immune response in an asymptomatic person prevents transmission. If a germ can't secure its hold on your body, your body no longer serves as a vector to send it forward to the next potential host. This is true even if that next person is not immune. When enough of us represent such dead ends for viral transmission, spread through the population is blunted and eventually terminated. This is called herd immunity. 
so it was just interesting to me that he was basically saying asymptomatic people, you know, which are healthy people prevent transmission, right? So if, because a germ can't secure its hold onto your body mm-hmm. and you're not a vector. So you're a vector when you're infectious and symptomatic. So, you know, that just thought that was interesting wording. So I just wanted to put that out there. Interesting. He essentially said, if you are healthy and you might be an asymptomatic vector, you better get out there and spread herd immunity. But if you're sick, stay home. (laughs) Or if you have any symptoms, (laughs) stay home because you'd be the spreader, which kind of applies to every single condition ever. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly right. Yes. I feel like sometimes we like come full circle. And, you know, that's again, this is just now my opinion, but I feel like we will eventually come full circle in back to that same stance. I'm not sure it's as nuanced as people might say it is. It's as novel as people might say it is that we come back to, you know, the basic principles of transmission and hygiene and science and history, which is if you're sick, you stay home. If you're symptomatic, that's when you spread disease and you stay home, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. I think the problem also becomes, and this is true, and maybe this is a good segue into kids, is that so many kids go to school sick, Mm, right? That's true, yes. And so I've spoken a few times to a nurse around this area, and, you know, we've had, we come at this from different perspectives, but, you know, we've come to agree on so much, and so we talk a lot, and we've been writing to the schools and things like that. So, and that's her worry that, you know, kids are just given Tylenol Advil and they send them to school. It does happen. (laughs) Well, and there's there's reasons for it, right? Like you start to feel penalized if you can't go for a long time. It kind of sucks. And yeah, it's hard to even have that conversation. Like we were talking off air without talking about immunity, because if your immune system is suppressed, you're going to pick up things more often. And like we have very clear markers about this, right? Or if you get sick often, your immune system is not in tip top shape, right? Like that's a real, that's kind of a duh thing. Okay. Cause you don't, it's not, you don't have to get sick all the time, but just to go back to what you said, if nothing else, hopefully through this year of shutdown, we learn how to wash our hands and stay home when we're sick. That's right. Okay. That's right. Definitely. For sure. Yeah. Okay. We can graduate from kindergarten hygiene, right? And that's yeah. washing hands. I mean, and even for some of us who may have been lazy, I mean, that's, Certainly that message is drilled home at this point. Right. Yeah. I was thinking, speaking of going back to school, the preliminary recommendations from the CDC, alarming to a parent, uh, and that's an opinion that probably a lot of people share, but they were a bit alarming. (laughs) And I was just giggling about it because I was thinking about the real habit. I was like wondering, I was thinking about what I know about people that work in government office. Like when you go to Washington, D.C. and you lobby to people, it's run by 20-somethings because they're paid very poorly. And these are the people who are willing to do it at this time. And these are the people that inform policy decision. Like you go, you see this in person. And so I was just thinking about like, who works at these places? I wonder if they have children when they write these things down. Like, do you have children as I watch? Because I think to myself, if a kindergartner, this is totally a joke and it's a bad one. Um, But I was like, if my kindergartner has to go to school wearing a mask, how's he going to be able to pick his nose? <laughs> like normal kindergartners. I'm totally joking. Right. All right, let's talk about going back to school. Real research now. So in terms of kids, right? So I have the kid. So that, so it makes it more relevant and, you know, applicable to me. So that's why, of course, I looked into some of these too. Okay. And because there's so much that we see online now about this. So 
The largest study that I could find, it's sort of a, a review article. It's in a journal called Acta Pediatrica. And yeah, where is that from? That is... I was pulling that up earlier, too. It says it's a review article. It looks like... Sweden. I think it's sure. Sweden. That's yeah, that's what I I believe I just I, I meant Jonah. to have that as well. Yeah, because it's kind of hard to okay. say it's like acta pediatrica. But yes, a Swedish yeah. article and I'll confirm that as you keep talking. Okay, so yeah, it's called uh, children are unlikely to be the main drivers of the COVID-19 pandemic. A systematic review came out May 19th, 2020. And basically, they identified 700 scientific papers and letters and 47 full texts that were all studied in detail. And, you know, the basic message was... And that was that, that was literally what it said. It wasn't that you said they were studied in detail. Literally, Correct. that's what it says I'm in the results. Crazy. I'm just saying, because I, if we think about that, it feels yeah. like an oxymoron just because of the haste of research <laughs> right now. Sorry, I didn't mean I, to interrupt I, you. But No, no, no. I have, um, you know, maybe 12 documents open on my computer and about 50 different windows. So yes, I'm definitely reading, no doubt. Mm -hmm. So that's what it says. And then it said household, you know, I'm skipping a few lines. Household transmission studies showed that children were rarely the index case and case studies suggested that children with COVID-19 seldom caused outbreaks. And then, so that was in results. And then the conclusion, which is pretty conclusive <laughs> as conclusions go, children are unlikely to be the main drivers of the pandemic. Opening up schools and kindergartens is unlikely to impact COVID-19 mortality rates in older people. So, I mean, that's pretty big review. That's a pretty big um, statement, too, really. I mean, it's a big review. Yeah. It's way better than the one I just had about we had one guy and 22 people, and these people had different <laughs> types of flu-like symptoms in two days, so therefore the infectivity is high. I mean, looking at 700 different studies is much, much better than that. So I just want to be right. clear about the quality when we're thinking about sure. overall quality as well. Right. Yeah, one more important point. And as I was reading this morning, and I think I did post about this, the, the CDC essentially says, you know, and just by the way, like, I don't think anyone likes to, I know we're talking about statistics, but nobody likes to say the word death and children in the same sentence, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's just, you know, so when we talk about this stuff, right, it's just, you know, we can't ignore that. But they do qualify the death rate from children as 0%. It is so close to zero. As of today, I believe there have been 26 deaths of those, I believe it was 17 and under. And in comparison, I'm just doing this by memory because I don't have this in front of me. I just read it this morning. I actually have it in front of me if you want me to give you the exact numbers because you told me. Okay, so I'm just going to clarify because so it's not from okay. your brain because you gave me this information as well. So we have a bajillion things open. In 2018 to 2019, there were 477 okay. children under 17 years of age that passed from flu deaths. Flu deaths in 2019 to 2020, which we're only partway through, these are qualified as 122 under 24 years of age and 81 of them being under 14. Okay, so big contrast from flu, which is interesting mm -hmm. that flu deaths suddenly are, well, I guess we're only halfway through the year, right? So what I'm presuming is 122 total deaths of flu from 2019 to 2020 and 2018 to 2019. And we must be going by school year. So apparently, I guess this would be passed well, already. 
true, but also understand it's just flu season, right? That's sure. ended. So they're just talking about this, you know, so they're essentially not going to be that many more from the flu for this flu season, okay. meaning 2019, 2020. The next one will be, of course, 2020, 21. Okay. So on that note, yeah. though, if we're talking about flu season from 2018 to 2019 and 2019 to 2020, it's a huge disparity here. So if it's 477 last year and 122 this year, that's like goofy. That's 70% yeah. reduction. How is that even possible? Sorry, I'm just being like, I'm just being like the person listening right now. How is that even possible? So but anyway. If, so if you're just listening, right, for the first, so that's true. When I first looked into, you know, all of this information, 2018, 2019 was a really bad year for the flu. Mm. And apparently hospitals were overrun and, you know, there are many similar scenarios like that for that year. So, mm-hmm. but that, I didn't know that of course mm-hmm. at all until right. I started looking into it. So that was a particularly bad year for sure. Okay. So this is actually coming from a study from JAMA Pediatric. That's how I'm pulling. Well, I have this one open. Plus I have the extracts here. So it looks like it's from JAMA Pediatrics published May 11th, 2020. And so we'll see if you have this one open as well. Characteristics and outcomes of children with coronavirus disease 2019 infection admitted to U.S. and Canadian pediatric intensive care units. So these children are rather ill. So May 11th publishing, and we're looking at kids admitted to U.S. and Canadian ICUs. I also have from this article, so we were just talking about flu season. This year was 122 kiddos um, flu deaths. And last year it was 477, which is so sad. But I'm seeing COVID deaths as 51 under 24 years of age and nine under 14 by comparison for this year, obviously only this year. Do you have this one open? I'm just going to, otherwise I'll just kind of see if there's anything we want to mention. I just have a few red lines from this Mm -hmm. same study, basically just reiterating in their conclusion They said, and I'm just reading at this point, it says, thus, up to this time of the pandemic in North America, children continue to face a far greater risk of critical illness from influenza than from COVID-19, pointing to the imperative for ongoing preventive pediatric health maintenance during this time. Mm. So, I mean, that stood out to me. And another, basically, it's comparing it, right, to the flu. Um, Mm. That's where this really goes on. And it definitely goes on and says how it manifested in children. GI issues were a few and then and things like that. But nothing earth shattering. I mean, to me, that was the main takeaway was that the flu is just more dangerous. Yeah. Well, I mean, that was the topic of the study as well. And if anyone's wondering if I have any usefulness in this interview, I'm over here like copy and pasting in order the actual study abstracts so we can have them in the show notes and put them maybe out on a blog post too, just so they're easier to share, right? Because at the end of the day, opinions are a challenge and this whole topic is, let's just call it challenging. It's a challenging topic to even talk about. For the most part, there's no like opinion changing per se. It's like, just give me some actual data and actual so anyway, I'm trying to put it in order of what we're discussing. Actually, I am getting it absolutely in order of what we're discussing. So I hope that that is useful for people. Is there anything else we want to talk about? I mean, this again is difficult to talk about without talking about immunity because just as like humans, this is heart-wrenching, right? Because it's right. hard to watch. It's also hard. I mean, sometimes like the more you know, it's harder to watch things happen a little bit, right? So it's hard for me to watch people get sick frequently, right? Because we know that that means something else 
else underlying is allowing that immunity to be suppressed, right? And that can be nutrient deficiencies, simply like vitamin D. Anyway, back to kids. Anything else we want to talk about in relevance to kiddos? Yeah. So the only thing, I mean, to me, those were like the largest studies and the most, I guess, far reaching. I think it's important to see what Europe has done, right? Which is to say... 1.5 million kids have gone back to school and it hasn't increased the COVID-19 cases, right? So because Europe was ahead of us in everything in terms of the curve, you know, it hasn't impacted the cases at all. So, I mean, just that's important to know. And there was a really big article. So I already said this, according to Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the COVID I'm reading, the COVID-19 fatality rate in the U.S. for anyone younger than 19 is so low it's calculated at 0.0% of the more 88,000 COVID-19 deaths recorded through May 30th, right? So that's a few weeks back. 15 were children between the ages of 1 and 14. That compares with 2,571 deaths from all causes for those ages during the same period. So it's a pretty complete article, you know, and it does have references. I like those better, of course, where it's just not opinion. But, you know, the CDC guidelines for going back to school has definitely enraged many parents. It's going to be difficult to put all those things into place. If I'm just using my own local community as an example, there's already Facebook group, there's letters being written, there's lawsuits, there's, you know, all sorts of things that are going on right now. So for what's happening with you guys. Yeah. Lots of things happening. I'm not sure. It seems like many people will go on a rotating schedule of some kind. But, you know, it's still June 23rd. Well, yeah, I know. It's only June 23rd. And we really like this stuff hit the fan kind of mid-March-ish in the U.S. Well, at least it felt that way. Sorry, I'm in the Midwest, which is a little bit different than the other side. And we've seen this play out, right? The East Coast and the West Coast right. both got hit. But then the West Coast was like, I guess it's not like kind of like we were thinking, whereas the East Coast is still pretty wild in some areas. So anyway... Like we have yet to have a case in the county I live in, which is, I know, weird, but or at the moment, I mean, as I speak, actually yesterday they had free testing here finally. So we could even talk about that, not even necessarily today, but like do more cases equal a greater incidence or just more testing? And I think you had some information about data dumping. Like we're actually pulling numbers like that weren't being reported before. Anyway, we don't have to talk about that right now. What I would like to touch on though, is when you said I was looking for an article for this that was published Mm -hmm. in uh, a research paper and I was unable to find one. I was just able to find a pretty good news article that kind of showed different countries and when they reopened, essentially. So do you have a published article about European infection rates? Or do you think what we'll do is after this, we'll try to pull something together for that line? Because I literally have this all outlined already as we are talking. I'm putting things in their place so we have this in writing. So you don't have to say either way, but if you have some citations, we'll work on that one for the kiddos for Europe. For sure. The only thing I'll say about that, there is something about Denmark opening and how there's been no increase in cases, Mm -hmm. specifically about schools. But it's also important to understand, sometimes, like, so I know the link that you're talking about, it just shows, okay, what has opened since this time. And so sometimes what a researcher does is, okay, well, schools opened at this time. Let's go look at the country and see what the mm-hmm. case rate is or what's happening. And then it's like, okay, well, schools have opened and their cases are going down. Or 
like even in the United States, yesterday was the all-time lowest death rate. I think it was like 285 or 275, you know, since the peak in March, right? So sometimes other writers or other people are not going to put it together. But if you see, okay, schools are opening, these are the statistics for each country is what we're left with. And, and I put it together, right? Mm-hmm. So sometimes right. it's a matter of that, but I'll still look for something that says exactly what we're looking for. Right, of course. Yeah. So we'll pull that and make sure it's just kind of item a little bit clear for people to pull. And because I agree, like it's not necessarily published in a great place, but you can compare schools open right now. What is the case rate? So as of June 22nd, that was the all time lowest death rate. And what was the number? 285. In the US only. Right. Even that- though, you know, we see surge in cases, like, I'll just say this briefly, I know, right, there's so many holes and so many tunnels we can go down. You know, certainly, of course, more testing, more cases. But I think we have this impression that a case means an infection, or a case means that somebody, you know, something really negative. And it doesn't really necessarily mean that. Mm -hmm. To me, it means the more cases, the more positive I'm thinking herd immunity, right? I'm thinking the better off. I'm thinking the virus is losing its virulence, right? I mean, and this is what happens with viruses, right? And it loses steam. So I don't look at it as a negative thing, but it is fun like that. Mm -hmm. Okay, awesome. Thank you for noting that. Very useful. Okay, so here's where we're at. We are on... We've gone through asymptomatic transmission. Going back to school, we're talking about kiddos in general. Now we're on immunity and and or masks, whatever one you want to go with next. And by the way, I mean, I feel like we did kind of segue into immunity because it's so hard to have this conversation without, which we are going to talk about, I believe, in a subsequent discussion. It's like, what does immunity look like here? Like, here's some actual practical things you can do. Because I do feel, as we're talking about this out loud, I do feel a little bit guilty. So like, as you've been in practice for a while, you realize you don't give out unsolicited advice because it doesn't matter. (laughs) It's not like it's not necessarily useful to someone if they didn't want this advice. We all have these people in our lives, right? Like, I do not want your advice, I do not trust your advice, whatever. So we have a lot of feelings about this. But as a person who works with immune systems and gut health, I feel a little bit guilty about myself right now. Like, oh, what should I be doing to help? But at the same time, does it matter? So let's talk about immunity and why we should care and tell us. So sorry, I've decided we're talking about immunity instead of masks first. Okay, no problem. (laughs) That works. So we'll we'll start off with a study. Okay, because that's always good. To me, what I thought was the most important study so far, there were a few studies in the journal Cell. Without breaking it down, sometimes it's just so confusing for people. So I'm going to use layman's terms as much as possible so we can just all get it. The title was called Targets of T-Cell Responses to SARS-CoV-2 Coronavirus in Humans with COVID-19 Disease and Unexposed Individuals. Got it. So that's May 14th, 2020. Got it. So basically, this paper made two important discoveries, right, that would indicate herd immunity is imminent. The first thing, which is super important, right, 100% of those that recovered from COVID-19 had active CD4 and T cells, which are a type of white blood cells, which conferred classic immunity, as many people expected. So 100%, right? So that's pretty good. So if you had at least a moderate to severe case of COVID-19, you would have immunity. So that was one important discovery, which, you know, is not shocking, but still it's a discovery because we have to act like this is new and because that's what it's called, right? Novel. Mm, right. <laughs> uh, so the second 
important point was that the scientists looked at blood samples collected between 2015 and 2018, pre-SARS-CoV-2, right, which is cool. And they detected immune responses in about half the samples. So that basically said 40 to 60 percent or 50 percent on average of the patients that never had COVID-19 also had immunity. So how is that? You know, and this is the really important point, because it turns out that if you've had or been infected with the common cold coronaviruses, then you are protected in many cases. So, you know, this is interesting, right? So coronaviruses have been around for a very long time. Mm -hmm. We've been vaccinating cattle from coronaviruses for a long time. Absolutely. So there are four main coronaviruses, cold, common cold coronaviruses, that are talked about all the time that I didn't know about, of course, until I started doing digging into the research. And just so, you know, I'll say them out loud. They have letters and numbered names, right? So one is OC43, NL63, 229E, and HKU1. So these are the four common cold coronaviruses. So basically, say it in a different way, if you've had one of these coronaviruses, then there's a good chance that you have protection from COVID-19. And so that's what makes this so difficult, right, to measure in any regard. It makes antibody testing difficult, the PCR testing, Mm -hmm. you know, diagnostic testing. And in some cases, if you've had this and then say you have COVID-19, it might be so mild because you've had one of these before. Mm -hmm. I want to get the numbers right. I'm so sorry. I'm writing it down. OC43, NL63, 229 something. 229E, as in Eddie. Mm-hmm. And HK and HKU one. Thank you. Just getting my notes right for everyone else. I'm taking your notes no for you, so you don't have to drive and take notes, guys. <laughs> yeah. So this was pretty good in terms of signs telling us forty to sixty percent. There's another disease epidemiologist who claims, again, this is his opinion, right? That maybe up to eighty percent of us are protected, and that's quite possible. Because if we think about other like Petri dish cases of coronavirus exposure, so there were two of those, and I'm not an expert on these two, but I know at least some about them. One was the USS Theodore, and the other one was the Diamond uh, Princess ship. And they each had, you know, a certain amount of uh, positive tests and a certain amount of asymptomatic results and things like that. The Diamond Princess had an older population, so they got slightly sicker. The USS Theodore had, you know, healthier, younger males, mostly. But anyway, so that's where this epidemiologist gets a lot of his information. But in terms of the study, I think this is, to me, the most concrete evidence that these common cold coronaviruses are providing us with protection and making some of us who come in contact with it not feel anything. Because mm-hmm. we heard, I don't know if you have, but I've heard those stories about this person, you know, had a positive test and had zero symptoms whatsoever, right? That makes it very confusing, which right. we'll talk about testing, you know, in the future. But, and by the way, Cell is a big journal, right? So it's kind right. of a big deal, this one. Okay. Jenna, that was so useful. Is there anything else you would want people to understand before we get into part two of this mini series about coronavirus? Oh, good question, right? Probably a lot of things, but I will say to look up, we all know the placebo effects are documented, right? But so are nocebo effects, N-O-C-E-B-O. And 
this is documented as working. And that is, if you think something will harm you, it will. Just like the same goes for if you think something will help you, it will. And I think our mental health throughout all this, you know, has to be really looked on and dodged and really paid attention to throughout this whole thing. I don't think we can ignore that. And that's maybe less scientific, but I see that every day with people. I think when I like look at PubMed and I go look for recent studies around the coronavirus, a lot of it, I mean, like at least half of it is around mental health and the psychological implications. Now that's what I'm seeing pop up in my search results. And so I don't think any, it's like totally lost on anyone that anxiety is through the roof. Health is, but there's so many secondary problems here. It's like quite the social experiment, if I think we can all agree on that. So, but mental health, I mean, so that's why like, I feel this has been overall positive today and I would like to leave us with positivity. (laughs) Yes. Well, the last, I will say one more thing, knowledge, precedent, and data. When we go back to that, like those things are comforting because I think this, we'll see that this follows many of what we know to be true, right? Many of the viruses and many of the facets of transmission. So I think we should just go back to that knowledge, precedent, data for comfort. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we all want to be careful and take extra precautions, but we hope that this like kind of applies to just overall <laughs> less incidents of. Too- I hope it brings like a lot of awareness, right? So, anyway, again, thank you so much for coming on today, and we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. One of the best gifts you could give us at the Less Stress Life is your feedback. We are paid in podcast reviews. If you enjoyed this or any other episode, please leave us a review. In the iTunes store or from your podcast app, just search for Less Stress Life as if you're not already subscribed. Click on the banana face image, scroll to the bottom where it shows the text of other reviews, and write a review. While you're there, hey, make sure you hit subscribe. For Android or Stitcher users, you gotta go to the desktop site and search for Less Stress Life and then scroll down to leave a review. Stitcher doesn't load Apple reviews on their site, so if you want, you can leave a review in both places. Your feedback means a lot to the success of the show. Thanks so much for taking the time to do that. You rock. 